We are here in the middle hour of our grief. So many have suffered so great a loss, and today we express our nation's sorrow. We come before God to pray for the missing and the dead, and for those who love them. On Tuesday, our country was attacked with deliberate and massive cruelty. We have seen the images of fire and ashes and bent steel. Now come the names, the list of casualties. We are only beginning to read. They are the names of men and women who began their day at a desk or in an airport, busy with life. They are the names of people who faced death. And in their last moments, called home to say, "Be brave," and "I love you." They are the names of passengers who defied their murderers and prevented the murder of others on the ground. They are the names of men and women who wore the uniform of the United States and died at their posts. They are the names of rescuers, the ones whom death found. Running up the stairs and into the fires to help others, we will read all these names. We will linger over them and learn their stories, and many Americans will weep. To the children and parents and spouses and families and friends of the lost, we offer the deepest sympathy of the nation. This conflict was begun on the timing and terms of others. It will end in a way, and at an hour of our choosing. Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. This is episode 45. And off of this episode is Michael Rodriguez. Uh, Mr. Rodriguez is a retired Special Forces medic. Uh, he spent 21 years in the U.S. Army. Uh, he was medically retired from wounds that he received from uh, IEDs. And um, not only has he had a long career in serving in the U.S. Army with his first deployment being with the 10th Mountain Division in Somalia and his last deployment being in Afghanistan with 7th Special Forces Group, he continues to do very great things and good work uh, post-military career as he works with the uh, George Bush Foundation and he sits uh, on the Military Service Initiative Board and they do a lot of great things and, and you can check them out at bushcenter.org and then you can just click on the military service initiative uh, they do a host of great things and provide services for veterans and uh, not only does he sit on that board and work with them he's also very involved with the Greenberry Foundation and they also do great work for veterans as well uh, and one thing that we spoke about and this is something that I was always 
wanted to talk about on the podcast is traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress disorder. And the reason that Michael retired from the army was because he had severe TBI. And then subsequently that led to him being diagnosed with uh, PTSD as well. And he's very open about it. And in doing so, we would hope that, you know, if anyone is going through any of these issues that they can, you know, see that they're not alone on these issues and that there are others out there who are willing to help them uh, get through their struggles. So at the, towards the end of the show, Michael, uh, he listed his email address and uh, for any guys out there who want to reach out to him, if, if you're going through the same struggle, uh, you can do that. Um, you can also send me an email to john at globalrecon.net uh, if you want to get in contact with Michael and I could uh, link you up. All right, so here's the interview I had with Michael Rodriguez. My guest for this episode is Michael Rodriguez and uh Michael is a retired Special Forces 18 Delta Special Forces medic uh, with nine deployments. Uh, his first was in Somalia with the 10th Mountain Division to his last in Afghanistan with the 7th Special Forces Group. Uh, Michael was medically retired after 21 years of continuous service for numerous injuries he received while in the service of our country. Uh, Michael, thank you for coming on for today's episode. Oh, hey, thanks for having me on, brother. Appreciate it. So you you've had a long career in the U.S. Army. Um, you you were in the conventional side, and then you went over into special forces. Um, when you joined the army, did you already know that you had wanted to go the special forces route, or did that kind of happen uh, as you were moving in uh, through the, through your career throughout your career? Yeah, you know, I, I think that was always a, a goal of mine when I joined. You know, when I joined, obviously the you know the whole eighteen X-ray program wasn't around, so it wasn't even an option. Um, but it was it was something I always you know uh, thought would be uh, you know something to do. So, you know, I saw the the Green Berets from John Wayne. You know that John Wayne started in, and, and uh, you know I knew a little bit. You know, I did my my research. You know, before joining the service, uh, and that was it was kind of something I, I really wanted to do. Um, so I think I think that was always there, but it was uh, you know I, I had to get my time in the conventional side for a good little over five years uh, before I decided to take that route. You come from a long line of uh, military service in your family. Uh, and now you had a, a grandfather who served in World War II, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, both of my grandfathers uh, served in World War II, um, you know, and, you know, my father's a Vietnam veteran as well. So, and, you know, my, I mean, my great uncles, like my grandmother's brothers, uh, you know, uh, served as well. One jumped in on D-Day. Uh, the other was, uh, you know, was on the uh, the bombers and had like 22 missions uh, delivering the good news to Germany, you know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it was, it was, you know, growing up, my heroes were always, you know, my, uh, you know, the people I always looked forward to uh, or looked up to, you know, aside from like Spider-Man, you know, comics or whatever were, you know, it was my family, you know, the men in my family. Uh, so those were always kind of my first heroes. You know, I find that interesting, like, you know, in in society today. And, and then this, you know, I guess this is part of living in a free society where people can do what they want to do, you know. But I, I find it kind of an interesting dynamic of, you know, most kids grow up. And, and maybe it's something, you know, very innocent, like, you know, Spider-Man, right? Or... 
But then you have people who idolize like movie stars and, and, you know, music artists, pop artists, that kind of thing. And then you have people like yourself who were looking up to men of service, you know, the men of honor. And then from there, it kind of helps craft how you're going to proceed, you know, through your life moving forward. Um, so your deployment to Somalia, that was around the time of the Black Hawk Down incident, right? No, actually, I left. I left just shortly, uh, or actually a little bit before then. Uh, I wasn't there for the whole Black Down, Black Hawk Down incident. Uh, and while I was in Somalia, the the job I filled is an 18 year old private. You basically just uh, you know provided convoy security for the uh, the food. You know they were trying to get inland. You know to some of the places like uh, you know way inland, like uh, one of the one of the distribution sites was located. It's a town called uh, or city, whatever, uh, called Baidoa. And it was about a four and a half, five hour drive uh, due west from uh, from uh, Mogadishu. And uh, the further inland you went, you know, away from the coast is where you really started seeing uh, the people, you know, really affected by, uh, you know, famine. I mean, like, like uh, you know, like you'd, you'd seen, uh, you know, the commercials and everything like that. Because closer to the uh, coast, you know, people can fish. And you know, I'm not saying they were doing well, but they were definitely better off than those that were inland. And uh, that was the, the job I did or role I filled as a, you know, brand new private, you know, less than a year in the army, um, you know, providing security. I wasn't really hunting anybody down or looking for bad guys. You know, I like to be completely honest because whenever I tell people, you know, I served in Somalia, you know, they're like, oh man, you're Black Hawk down. No, 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 I wasn't. You know, did we get shot at? Yeah. We used to murder around attacks. Yeah. You know, um, but a lot of it was uh, escorting food and uh, providing security at the food distribution sites. Right. And if I remember correctly, the the Black Hawk Down incident for for that specific rotation where they were uh, hunting these guys down, uh, a lot of things were pretty um, kind of routine, and they didn't expect that mission to last as long as it did, and that was kind of a, a, a shock to everybody. No, it was, you know, and the funny thing is, because um, I was I was there a few months before, and, and it was kind of funny to see how uh, the city of Mogadishu kind of uh, developed over our time there. Uh, you know, cause we, we driven through, you know, the, the markets down there and, and it was, it was pretty, it was pretty nasty. I mean, it was pretty brutal, but it was almost, uh, tangible. The longer we were there, the, uh, you know, the, the more apparent was that, uh, as we could just almost feel the hostilities, uh, increasing, you know, they really didn't, you know, the warlords pretty much controlled everything, particularly ID, you know, uh, it was, it was, it was interesting to see. Uh, I look back on it now. I don't think I understood what I was noticing, you know, as an 18 year old, um, but looking back now and, and, you know, playing some of the events over in my mind, it just kind of, uh, it's, it's, uh, if you really pay attention, man, <laughs> um, you can really see a lot happening. Yeah, definitely. So, so now moving forward, what year was it that you had decided that you were going to go into special forces selection? Well, um, I did my four first four years up at uh, Fort Drum and then like a lot of young guys joined the military. They're like, oh man, I want to be stationed closer to home. So I re-enlisted uh, to get closer to home, and I'm from southern New Mexico. So, you know, by some miracle, I got stationed at White Sands Missile Range, which is like 20 minutes from my hometown. And uh, that lasted maybe a year. And I realized that, uh, you know, just those four years in the Army with the uh, up at Drum, uh, with the deployments to uh, Somalia, and then, uh, you know, that, that first trip that we made to Haiti, you know, uh, we weren't sure if we were invading, you know, uh, I was part of that task force, um, 
you know, I, I realized I had changed. I was different. You know, the guys I went to high school with, they were still my friends, but we were just so different. I had changed so much in those four years. And that's when I, I realized, I'm like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to chase my dream. And uh, I went to selection from there. And then, uh, you know, following selection, I got, you know, a seventh group guy. Uh, so I, that's pretty, pretty much the rest of my career here at Fort Bragg. And when you got in, did you go straight into the um, 18 Delta course? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I went to selection. You know, they gave you the the options. You're like, hey, do you want to be a Bravo? You know, all these. You know, and I didn't I didn't know much about special forces other than other than what their jobs were and my experience with them. I saw them in Somalia. You know, I saw the guys. You know, in Haiti as well. You know, and anytime we get somewhere, they would already been there, and they were just different. You know, and I was like, well, I didn't really know much about it, so I, I selected. Yeah, I want to be a weapons guy. You know, and I did mine, but then, uh, you know, I guess for whatever reason, needs or whatever, they're like, no, you're going to be an 18 Delta. And, and I'm, I'm really glad they did. Uh, you know, I was selected to be an 18 Delta, although it was academically, uh, a lot more challenging than the other courses. You know, I'm not talking down on the other courses or anything like that, but it's definitely a lot more challenging of a, of a Q course. If you're an 18 Delta, um, you know, over my time, uh, on a team, uh, you know, over, over the years through the rest of my career, you know, I could pretty much do everybody else's job, you know, cause we do cross train, but you know, there's only one person that can do the 18 Delta job and that's pretty much the 18 Delta. No, I know that now for the, uh, special operations medical course, uh, the, the, uh, the guys who are going to go through, whether it be, you know, Rangers or SEALs or Greenberries, it's like a, a course where they all go to the same course. Now, was it like that during those days? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, they, it, but it was broken down, and it kind of there still is somewhat of a segregation uh, during the medical portion. Um, the way it was when I went through, man, I sound like an old guy, right? <laughs> so, so uh, it, it was called. Uh, there was two courses. There was special operations combat medic, med, special special operations combat medicine uh, medic at Sockham, and then there was SFMS, the Special Forces Medical Sergeant's course. Now the first. Part was when uh, the PJs used to go through our course as well uh, until they, you know, developed their own program uh, out there in uh, in Kirtland, I believe. Um, you know, and we had the uh, the Ranger medics, you know, and then we had the the SEAL the SEAL pups coming through, and then it was us. But then after Sockham, the only people that went on to SMS, SFMS, which was a lot more of the pharmacology, the lab, a lot more of the uh, internal medicine, a lot more of the advanced stuff, uh, particularly surgery, uh, anesthesia, a lot of the stuff that people don't realize what we're capable of doing. That was only the 18 Deltas. Or they would send back seasoned SEALs, the IDCs, independent uh, duty corpsmen would come through. But those guys were, you know, had been on a, had been a SEAL platoon for a considerable amount of time and they, they came back, you know, but they were already, you know, seasoned, uh, seasoned veterans, you know. Uh, and then they would go through the that portion, but now it's it's a bit different. Uh, but there still is somewhat of a distinction for the eighteen deltas. Yeah, and you know, in, in today's reality of you know stateside, uh, especially with bombings that just happened in New York and uh, Seaside Heights in New Jersey, you know, I've had medics on special forces medics on before. I had a a Sark on. You know, one thing that seems to be a common theme amongst the the medics from the special operations side of the house is that civilians need to be more trained up on trauma, trauma medicine and things like that. So I know that a lot of guys are coming home now, you know, after 15 years of war 
and entering the the civilian side of the medical field, whether it be like an EMT or or in other medical capacities, and then even to the point of owning their own businesses and uh, running training courses and things like that. One thing that stood out to me was I, I had a former 18 Delta on, and what he said was people really should have trauma kits versus having like a first aid kit in the car kind of thing, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny you say that. I mean, we, we all kind of agree the same thing, uh, only be based off our experiences. Uh, as much as the training that we've received, you know, people really need a trauma kit. I mean, it's cool to have a Band-Aid, you know, or you know, some gauze maybe, but, you know, you really need a, a tourniquet. You really need a whole bunch of Curlex. You really need some ACE wraps. You really need, uh, there, there's, there's, there's some things that the civilian community doesn't really comprehend, you know, until there is like, you know, a, uh, a mass cow, mass casualty situation, you know, and then people are, once you're inoculated to that, then people will fully understand, you know, I had an experience a few, uh, about a little over three years ago, I was driving down the road over here on Riley Road, and I watched this uh, teenager just get run over. I mean, like, run over and thrown up. So I stopped immediately, and I had my trauma bag in there, and I got out and rendered first aid to the child. Uh, and a lot of people were coming up, but, you know, I was just focused on, on him. And then once the paramedics showed up, then I could, you know, hand off my work to them. I stood up, and there was a huge crowd, and never once did someone offer help. You know, I could have used a hand. I could have used some help. This kid was in, in dire I mean, he was, uh, I mean, he was fighting for his life and I was doing what I could to keep him, uh, keep him going. But, uh, you know, no one stood up, no one did anything, you know? And I think after that experience, I hope all those people that saw that will take that with them and be like, wow, maybe I should do something. Maybe I can do something, you know, but, you know, it's just part of our society, man. People kind of want to stay in their own lane and don't really think it's, they, they can make a difference and they don't understand. I mean, an effort is better than no effort. Yeah, definitely. And um, I think it's something that should be discussed stateside for civilians and, and military guys alike. You know, one of the things that really made a difference uh, in the global war on terror in, you know, guys surviving at much higher rates than in any other war in history was that uh, every guy in the platoon was taught, you know, a basic level of, of uh, bleeding control and things like that. And that's what really helped, you know what I mean, versus having just a medic in the, in the squad being able to do some of these things. And um, I think if that same method or model is applied to civilians in the States, like like let's say, in, you know, in um, in high school or something like that, you know, you're taught like basic, you know, how to use a tourniquet and, and uh, basic bleeding control. I think as a whole, that would uh, save certain, you know, some people who die from bleeding out when they really could be saved, but it's no one around them has the training. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, all you got to do is compare and contrast, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the 90s Army medical training with the current training. You know, everyone was like a CLS, combat lifesaver, and that was like the thing. You know, you get your, your promotion points, that one-week class, and, and, and the focus of that is get an IV. And then look at what 
just the everybody's really training now, you know, the the TCCC, which you came from the 18 Delta course, just which was great. It just kind of filtered out to the forces as, uh, you know, it's it's amazing, you know. And if you really look at the numbers from uh, the number of deaths from World War during World War II from exsanguination from an extremity wound, meaning you know they bled from their arm or leg or something like that, I think it was over 40 percent, you know. Uh, and and they could have stopped that it was a tourniquet, you know. Right. So if you really if you, if you look at the statistics. Uh, I remember we were given that class when I was going through the course. It's like, look, it's just the simple things, you know, the, the simplest uh, uh, interventions can can save lives. You know, it's not about an IV. You know, it's funny how we've kind of gotten away with it. Even in the 18 Delta course, you know, that the training was when I went through, it was like, hey, two, 18, two large bore IVs open wide, you know, open all the way. You know, uh, now it's it's not really the, the focus now. There's a lot more of a uh you know we we've advanced so much and we're keeping guys alive uh so much longer uh it's just a testament you know it's just you know one of the uh if you really want to think about it i mean it's one of the benefits of war i mean i mean i really hate to to put that in the, that type of light but um you know warfare has advanced civilization i i, I can i'll argue anybody that says anything different you know i mean i can i can state that all you have to do is look at the facts no absolutely and i think uh you know, because of war, things move at a, a much faster speed, you know. Oh, exactly. I mean, if you just look watch, look at the Paralympics. So watch the Paralympics, which concluded, uh, the closing ceremonies was yesterday. If you look at the Paralympics, look at the, the technologies that they're using within some of the prosthetics. Oh, right, yeah. We, we, we pioneered that. I mean, the, the United States, because of the, the, the injuries, you know, we've, we've really just kind of set the bar. And if you looked at how many Paralympic records were smashed, I mean, just particularly in a track and field. I mean, it's it's amazing, and and I like to think as humans we are getting better. But I can I guarantee that a lot of that has to do with the technologies out there. Yeah, definitely. And um, so I uh, are you familiar? I think that I believe the name of it is the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. Are you familiar with that? Yep. So yep. they posted an article maybe in the last like two or three weeks. I saw it on Facebook. Uh, and it said that the army is going to begin to train medics to uh, to be able to provide prolonged field care, uh, assuming that you know they'll be fighting in an environment where they don't dominate the skies, and um, right. you know you can just call in like a medevac or something. Um, so I, you know I, I don't know what what that would entail, but I would imagine that that would include like you know different equipment and more extensive equipment, kind of. Oh yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot more training to include, like fluid therapy. You got to understand, you know, you're gonna have to provide more training, and that's that's great. I missed that article, but I think that's that's definitely fantastic to plan for that, you know, scenario where, like, hey man, we can't get guys out, you know, we we really can't. Um, and it, and that's that's a definite. I mean, that's uh, I mean, that's happened in our past. If you look at the current, you know, global war on terror, if you look at the events that happened at uh, at Cop Keating, you know, um, those guys were up there in a fight for hours upon hours and in uh a lot of a lot of the injured stayed up there for a considerable amount of time they weren't medevaced right away you know and um they were just fortunate to have the you know some of the uh, medical tr- medical uh, personnel up there that was trained in prolonged field care that you know aided the survivability of a lot of those guys you know but you know as as we all know unfortunately not all of them made it right right i uh, so you know, after you after you went into the 18 Delta course, uh, you got out, and and now you're in, in uh, special forces. The 
On the last episode, I had on uh, retired Special Forces Major Rusty Bradley. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Rusty at all. Um, but he, basically what we were talking about was, you know, after, you know, the 15th anniversary of 9-11, I kind of started, like, reflecting and asking myself, like, kind of on a scalable level what progress has been made in defeating this ideology that because it's not just one group it's different groups but it's all a very similar uh, concept that they base everything off of and i i recently read a book uh called hammerhead six about one of the uh the first odas to go into afghanistan and you know they set up an a a special forces a camp and they had a, a huge amount of success in winning over the local population and really denying the Taliban um, safe haven and things like that, and and that's really the the backbone of the special forces mission and the you know the unconventional warfare side uh, of the house. Right. Um, so I know that you were writing a piece on unconventional warfare and how using unconventional warfare tactics a much smaller group was able to outmaneuver and defeat a much larger group, uh, you know, using this methodology. And and that's really the backbone of uh, Army Special Forces uh, capabilities. Yeah, really. I mean, it's it's kind of been going on for, uh, you know, hundreds of years or even thousands if you, if you really start digging into the history books, you know. And, and the unconventional warfare aspect, I mean, that's kind of, you know, like, like you said, it's kind of our bread and butter. And 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 the beauty of unconventional warfare and, and what we do is going in there and you know and winning hearts and minds. But you know we work by through and with you know the host nation forces to pretty much get them to fight their own war. So for every one of them that is out there fighting for their cause, uh, protecting their national security interests, which you know uh, second and third order effects are our national security interests. Um, that's one less soldier, uh, one less U.S. soldier. Uh, that has to be on there, you know, and, 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 uh, an example I like to use, you know, I'm, I'm doing a, a paper on it right now in school in the anthropology class I'm taking is, uh, calling it the Cortez method, you know, and I'm doing a paper, how, how Hernan Cortez with, you know, 600 men, about six, I think he had about 16 horses, you know, uh, pretty much effectively, uh, decimated the Aztec empire, which numbered at that time, uh, during, uh, you know, conquistador's time, uh, 10 million, you know, and really he just kind of did that. He, he went in, he understood the people, he took advantage of, of, uh, you know, their, uh, their culture. He took advantage of their religion. He understood them. I mean, he studied them and then he used the surrounding tribes, um, you know, to kind of, uh, you know, outmaneuver them and pretty much overpower them, you know, and now of course he did bring some, so his own biological warfare, <laughs> you know, a lot of the diseases uh, of right. Europe that they were they weren't uh, really used to that kind of hurt the capital city of Tenochtitlan. But you know, the basis of it uh, really is just it's unconventional warfare, you know, uh, and that's that's really uh, what we do uh, best, you know. And if you look at uh, the global war on terror, you know, it's when some of the conventional forces uh, attempted to uh, conduct uh, coin ops, you know, counterinsurgency operations. Uh, they didn't really uh, understand it. They, uh, you know, maybe the command did and they were working at it, but they weren't as successful. You know, you had whole battalions. Uh, they were trying to do what a 12-man ODA could do 
and they were they weren't they weren't successful. Um, it's just kind of uh, it's just it's just what we do. It's within our culture, and it's not like we just started doing this. I mean, that's the basis of our culture uh, within special forces. I mean, that's if you trace our roots all the way back to the OSS. I mean, that's kind of what they did. You know, the Jedburg teams they went in there and worked with the French Resistance and. And then, you know, became, uh, once we were officially Green Berets, uh, you know, we look at the history of Vietnam. I mean, that's just what we do. So we have, you know, a, you know, about 70 years of history uh, doing that. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, on the last episode, we spoke about how the conventional side of the house was attempting to to run those operations and they, they really weren't successful, not because they're not capable, but because that's not what their mission is and that's not what their training uh, has prepared them for. And that's not, you know, they weren't supported to do that mission, you know? And, um, and one of the questions that I had uh, for major Bradley was, you know, how come he thought that that was the case? Like, why wouldn't, uh, if so from the, from the army standpoint, you have a, whatever rank the general is who's controls this battle space right why would he not let a special forces captain brief him on the best way to move forward and implement that strategy and and basically what he felt like it was just like a basic uh age old kind of thing where this colonel is not going to take orders or or it's not going to listen to a special forces captain and it's really unfortunate that something like that would get in the way of um, having a, a really good, st- effective strategy. No, I mean, it's unfortunate that uh, ego comes into play. And really, that's what, that's what it boils down to. You know, we, we have uh, everybody likes their, their own slice of the pie and likes, you know, likes that's their lane. And then when they try and do someone else and they're really not going to want to listen to them, you know, and and that's not always the case. You know, obviously, there are uh, some that have listened, but overall it's just uh it's 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 just really really unfortunate to have uh uh experienced that you know and you know myself you know it, it's it's very hard for uh an 05 or an 06 to sit there and listen to an E7 and <laughs> and and I'm I'm sure it drives them nuts sometimes and we know more about what's going on within the battle space within the AOR um and they really don't want to listen to us, unfortunately. Uh, and I've had good experiences where they have, but that's not always the case. And I really think it goes down to just ego, you know. Yeah, and I think after Iraq kind of started to wind down, um, I think that kind of like the the global war on terror. Maybe people are aware of it, maybe they're not, but a lot of operations are conducted outside of Iraq and Afghanistan and different places of the world, wherever it's needed to kind of counter these groups. And that type of work is done by obviously special operations forces. Um, But it just, it just goes to show that, you know, even though we know history and we know the history of Afghanistan, for example, and, and you can see what mistakes were made, like Alexander the Great, he was losing until he married the daughter of uh, I, I forget the exact title the guy had, but he was either a king or yeah, yeah, he, no, yeah, he, he had to be accepted into the culture, marry prominent fam- prominent family, yeah, he had to be into it, you know, right, and and that's like just an example of like 
really in a in a way if you look at it like unconventional warfare you know so he he couldn't beat them you know just through brute strength and head on battle so what he do what he do he married himself into the culture no, and, no you're right and that's 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 key you know is understanding your adversary understanding the culture identifying with them and I don't mean understanding them by knowing everything there is to know about them, but like try and try and get in their mind, try and figure out how they think, and that's very difficult to do. Like, yeah, uh, last week at the in New York City at the uh, at the dedication of the uh, uh, response monument, you know, the horse soldier statue, uh, someone came up to me and asked me, it was uh, they're like, hey, so you know, why why did you guys always have beards? I don't understand why special force guys always have beards and. And was it because it was cool or different? You could get away with it. And I was like, well, no, you know, if, if you really if you look at it, it's because, you know, if I'm having a meeting with a tribal elder and I don't have a beard, I'm not a man. We understood that, you know. So if you look at it conversely from, let's say we have a task force commander, some some colonels having a meeting with a tribal commander. You think that colonel has a beard? Do you think that tribal commander is really going to take him seriously? Because he doesn't have a beard. So he's not really a man. You know, and that's that's part of understanding. And that's that's just one example of why I think the conventional forces weren't as successful conducting counterinsurgency operations as, as you know, special operations forces were. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's it's just kind of disheartening in a way to know that, you know, all we have to do, there's so many examples in history of what works and what doesn't. And it's like. You know, we'll, we'll we'll go as a country. We'll go. We'll get to these stages, you know, and and we'll just repeat the same mistakes. And yeah. it's it's almost like did anybody read a history book? You know. <laughs> no, I know. It's just it almost. I mean, it, and it's through all cultures. It's almost like is that is this just human nature? You know, we get to a point where we think we know everything, and then we need to get our teeth kicked in, and then we got to relearn everything, as opposed to going back to the history books and be like, hey, look, what worked before? What? How did it? What did I do before? You know, and that's. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it just might be human nature, really. I don't know, <laughs> you know, it's just, it, but it is, it's puzzling, it's disheartening, but I'd be willing to bet it's going to continue. Oh, yeah, and and, and, that, and that's also not to say that there hasn't been measurable success, you know, in, <clears throat> um, in, uh, in, in, in a bunch of different facets, you know, but, um, you know, it, it just is a, a little strange to me, but hopefully we can figure it out going forward. Yeah, I think we're because <laughs> we're at a point right now. Uh, our military is in a way they're they're more experienced. We are more experienced now than we've ever been, and I, I like to think that wealth of knowledge um, is is going to stay. I, I really, really think that it's going to be it's going to become institutional knowledge as opposed to what was before. And and a good analogy I have now is like the the cadre when I was going through the Q course. All the SF guys that were teaching me how to be an SF guy, you know, there was one or two that had some time at Desert Storm, um, a few combat vets. Um, whereas now, the guys are going through the course right now, every single one of their cadre isn't just teaching doctrine, isn't just teaching uh, the the future of, of our Special Forces Regiment, you know, ideas or something they read in a the book. They're actually teaching them, um, you know, what they've experienced. So I really hope that this knowledge that we've gained up to this point is going to become institutional, institutional knowledge. And, 
you know, we'll be that much better for it, you know. And I, I have I have a dog in the fight <laughs> because my oldest son is, uh, believe it or not, he's actually an 18 X-ray right now here at Bragg getting his teeth kicked in. So, oh, um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say that on his podcast. He might, yeah, <laughs> people might search him out. But, uh, um, you know, it, I, I really think the, the guys that are graduating right now um, are far better trained, far better trained. They're more efficient. They're smarter. They're definitely stronger and faster than we were uh, because, you know, the advances in physical training and everything out there uh, to include nutrition. Um, it's it's uh, they're they're way better than I was when I graduated in 2000. So do you think the 18 X-ray program is a, a good thing or a bad thing? Oh, I believe it is a good thing. I, I really do. There's a and there are two sides to that argument. You're either for it or you're against it, you know, and I'm not saying I'm for it because my son is, is, is attempting it. I'm saying it, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I was for it because I saw some of the products. Now, you know, people like to point out, well, this one guy didn't know anything. This one guy didn't, this guy was a shit bag when he graduated and he was an 18 x-ray. And I, I like to, I, I'll, I'll remind him. I said, well, you know, I know guys that had experience in other you know, great units coming from 10th Mountain or 82nd or the Ranger Regiment or, you know, even even Marines that crossed over, went through the Q course and they were shitbags too. <laughs> you know, I think it gets down to the individual and, and the 18 x-rays that make it through the prep course, the go-through selection, they have a higher success rate than any other, any other group. You know, they keep data on all this. They, you know, like, hey, look, how successful are guys from 10th Mountain? How successful are guys from you know, uh, first armored. I mean, they keep, they keep all that stuff. I mean, it's a science selection is a science and the 18 x-rays are far more successful. Those that make it, you know, than any other demographic. Uh, so I, I believe in it because the program, I, I really believe if it was, if it was a crappy program, they would have got rid of it already. Yeah. And it's, you know, the 18 x-ray is really a, a program that is really born out of war, like directly, you know, like in, in Vietnam that, I don't. They didn't call it eighteen X-ray. I think it was like the yep. baby green. They call them the SFA babies. Yep. They yeah. There them. we go. Yep. So and you know and that was born out of a, a need, you know, operational need exactly d- during wartime. You know and 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 like like we were talking about on the medical side, you know, certain things happen, certain certain experiences are gained and knowledge is gained through needs and and through the experience of war and it's um. You know, I, I think it kind of makes for a more complete um, learning experience and whatever it is. Um, no, I, I agree. You know, I mean, a lot of people say, well, it worked back then. I, you know, I talked to a lot of the older SF guys, you know, and I, I guess I'm one of them now because I'm retired. But a lot of the older guys are against it. Like, well, it's a different generation. I'm like, well, man, you can't, you can't, you know, uh, blame millennials for everything. You know, I see plenty of good kids out there doing great stuff. You know, and the and the facts remain that we're, they're still out there. They're still filling these slots. These kids are still volunteering. So I, re, I refuse to label a whole generation a bunch of lazy, you know, uh, Xbox kids. You know, I, I refuse to do that. You know, I like to see the good and the hope uh, in, in people. You know, I'm, I'm just not going to jump on that bandwagon, man. I'm, just, I'm not drinking that haterade, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, the whole millennial uh, kind of you know, discussion, um, because, yeah, you know, of course there are, I think there is kind of, um, some truth to the people who are like kind of against the whole millennial thing, but 
at the same time, you know, like you said, I like to look at the good of it yeah. and and the positive and Exactly. I mean, if I just point out all the crap, well, what am I doing about it? You know, how am I, that doesn't, that's just, I mean, that's just a pessimistic way to look at the future because whether people like it or not, they are the future of this country. So, right. you know, I believe in the ideals that founded this country. I believe in everything that makes us Americans and I, I believe in our future. You know, I, I hope to pray on it every day. And uh, so, but no, you're right. I, I, I do see some of those other kids walking around, you know, doing the run into light pools, playing Pokemon Go and stuff. Yeah, no, I see them too. I see them. I'm not blind to those guys either. But, you know, like I said, I like to, to focus on the good and the positive and, and nurture that population and group, you know, because if that's all you hear about, then some of these kids that are extremely impressionable, that's what they're going to believe. So as, as you know, adults now or those that are in, in you know, uh, controlling everything now, whether we're running companies or – you know, speaking, uh, giving interviews, or whatever. If if that's a narrative you're perpetuating, you know what? Some kid may just be on that teetering point, and you just pushed them over to being a one of the ones you don't want. You know, so I look at trying to encourage and empower. You know, uh, that generation. You know, not just because you know I have three sons and I I think they're pretty good kids, um, but I just that's just just the way I see things. Yeah. So. You know, sp- speaking about encouraging and empowering, you were uh, medically retired. Uh, you have se- several injuries throughout your long career in, um, in the Army. And you've you had TBI. And, you know, as a result of different injuries, um, you know, explosions going off, that kind of thing. Now, you're, you're very vocal and you're very open about it. And I think that's a really great thing because... <laughs> You know, there is like a stigma and there are guys who really won't say anything because they feel like if they do talk about it, they're weak. You know, they don't want to show weakness. And and I think at the same time of them wanting to be strong, it prevents them from being able to progress in that way, you know? Yeah, no, you're you're 100% right. I was just I was just fortunate that, you know, every time I would, you know, you know, get blown up or get a concussion or or, you know, eat a charge or whatever it was that rang my bell that day, you know, um, particularly explosions, uh, you know, I kept all my pieces and me being 18 Delta, I recognized what was going on, you know, and I fell into that pit as well. I didn't want to lose my job. I'm like, no, I didn't, I don't want to do anything. I'm not saying nothing. So example, during my last rotation, I received about three, three TBIs, um, you know, from explosions downrange and, uh, you know, conducting combat operations, um, in a span of about five weeks. And we were about six weeks from ripping out, uh, you know, leaving country and returning back. And I knew what was going on. Um, but I didn't say anything. I was a senior medical, I was a senior adult on the team. I knew I was jacked up. I knew there was issues. I, I mean, my life changed on that deployment for, for the worse. Uh, but I was like, I'm not going to say nothing. I hit it. I kept to myself, nobody knew. A couple guys saw, you know, when I would, like the ID in particular that jacked me up really good. Uh, a couple guys saw it. They asked, I don't remember much of the event, but they asked me, you okay? And I said, I'm fucking fine. And just carried on. <laughs> I don't remember much. Yeah. Um, but I hit it because uh, I knew when I was coming back from that deployment, I was going to go to SWIC. I, um, you know, I'll get better. You know, I'll get better. I'll get better. But, you know, brain injuries are a cumulative effect. You know, they have a, every time you, uh, you know, get concussed, your brain releases a protein. It's called a tau protein, and it's very corrosive. 
And it didn't help that, you know, I grew up boxing and I boxed, you know, when I was up at Fort Drum for a while and then, you know, my career in Special Forces and then, you know, we were highly big in combatives and I was just, anyway, so I got a lot of, I just collected uh, concussions pretty much uh, downrange or even in training. So when I got to range 37, it didn't, that wasn't really the best place for me to go because we're still doing stuff, you know, we're still doing combatives, we're still doing explosive breaching, we're still doing a lot of overpressurization within confined spaces. So I continually uh, getting uh, getting more brain injuries, but I just kept hiding it, kept hiding it. And finally, some of my neurological deficits, like my speech in particular, my gait, you know, I, uh, I was having some balance issues, started to show itself. And then finally, I was forced to uh, go get help. Um, and then I was like, oh, it's just brain injury, you know, and never mind the fact that I was at that time in my life, I was, uh, you know, I was an alcoholic. Um, you know, I was abusing uh, my medication uh, from, you know, pain medication that was prescribed to me. I was abusing it. Um, I just figured it was brain stuff. So I get sent to NICO and, you know, Trepid Center up at Bethesda. And, you know, it's kind of like, like if you got a bum knee, you know, you just like, ah, oh, you just keep taking Motrin and you don't really know what's going on. And time goes on. Then you finally go in to get checked and you're like, man, you don't have any anymore. Well, that was yeah. kind of what, what happened with me. So I go up there and in NICO, the Intrepid Center is a fantastic program. I mean, that, that was, that place, uh, uh, definitely saved my life. All right. So, um, you know, I, when I left NICO, I had about 17 or 18 different diagnoses. And as they're reading them off to me, you know, I could, I could, you know, I was like, all right, you have this, you have multiple traumatic brain injuries, you have vision issues, diplopia, strabismus, uh, all these things neurologic that were caused from all the, the brain injuries. Those are things I could, like, to me, they were tangible. I'm like, all right, I can address this, I can address this, you know, to include, like, um, early onset Parkinson's, which is called Parkinsonisms. You know, they're going through all this stuff, and they're, hey, some of you're looking at early onset dementia and Alzheimer's by your maybe 50s, you know, and I'm like 38 or 37 at the time. So I'm like, all right, I can get through that. I can figure this out. I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. So when they get to the last diagnosis, they're like, and Sergeant Rodriguez, you have a severe post-traumatic stress disorder. And up to that point, I was like, all right, but I was good. But when they told me, I told me I had PTSD, I was like, you know what? You know, F you, you got PTSD. I got pissed for, I don't know why. I, I don't know why to this day. I got mad. I'm like, no, I don't. They're like, well, hey, look, you know, we're just, we, you have this. And and I was I was highly upset. I mean, I was like angry. And uh, thank God my care coalition advocate was sitting next to me. Uh, he, and uh, he uh, happened to have been my, he was my battalion sergeant major during my last rotation uh, when I got blown up the last time. And he put his sergeant major hat on and said, hey, look. You know, calm down, listen to what they got to say. And I, so I was like, Roger that. So I sat down and they said, look, before we can even begin to address any of these, uh, before we can even start treating any of these, uh, you know, uh, neurological issues that are secondary to your, to your PT, uh, to your traumatic brain injuries, we need to take care of your, your post-traumatic stress and your chemical dependency. Uh, you know, cause like I said, I was, I was an alcoholic, you know, I was just the, I, that's what, that's how I got through my days. So I was like, I'm not going. They're like, they're like, no, we need to. I said, what do you mean? They're like, well, we want to put you in an inpatient program. I go, what do you mean inpatient? Well, it's a hospital you have to stay at. And, 
you know, it's a dual diagnosis program is what they called it, you know, uh, to treat the chemical dependency and PTS. And I was like, I'm not going. And then that's when my advocate put his Sergeant Major hat on again. He goes, no, nah, you know, you're going. I'm like, all right, I'll go. When am I going? When do I go? They're like, you're going like in two days. Because if you don't, you know, you have to go. So this was like, I was like, all right, I'll go. You know, they convinced me to go. So it was like, I left like a day before Thanksgiving. So this is the first time I'm missing, you know, a holiday not because of deployment or training, you know, I'm missing because I have to go address, I have to take care of myself, you know. So it was a four week inpatient program. I got there and uh, I stayed eight weeks. <laughs> I, I needed the extra training. I joke about it all the time now. Uh, <laughs> so I missed uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, all that. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, that place, uh, it, it, it uh, I needed it. You know, I needed it, and and I speak openly about it. Yeah, I was at an inpatient program. You know, um, no shoelaces in my shoes, uh, no drawstrings in my shorts, locked facility. Um, you know, monitored twenty four seven. And I'm not embarrassed. You know, I'm not ashamed of that. I was at the program. I I realized I I needed it. You know, that it's it, it place saved my life. You know, it really uh, allowed me to address. Uh, some of the stuff I've been carrying around, you know, as far back, um, like I said, you know, from when I was an 18 year old private and dumb private in Somalia, you know. Um, but it was there that I realized that I had to take ownership of it. You know, no one else was going to address that stuff. No one else was going to take care of it for me. And I damn sure wasn't good to anybody if I couldn't take care of my own stuff. So, you know, it was it was uh, when I was inpatient that I realized, you know, the onus was really on me. It's it's on us as, as a veteran community. You know, if if you have an issue, you have to understand that you're the one that can fix it. No one can force you. I mean, I can't I can't make anybody go get help, um, but they have to do that and they have to own it. You know, and until you do that, um, it, it'll destroy you. It's kind of like if you want to look at it. Uh, you know, from uh, a military standpoint, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to, uh, uh, move on to an objective, you need to identify the objective, right? So, <laughs> I mean, you can't defeat an enemy you don't identify. So if you continue to ignore the signs of dealing with some of the stuff, you know, then, um, you, you're not going to get any better. You know, your family can try and help you, your, your kids, your wife, your, 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 your bros down on the team. I mean, but no one's going to be able to help you until you accept that. You know, and sometimes it's a, it's a hard call. I mean, it, it really is. And that was uh, one of the hardest things I, I think I ever had to do was admit that I needed help, you know, because up to that point, you know, it's, you know, in, in the military, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive for us to take care of ourselves, you know, because it's always mission first, then those to your left and right. Then if you got time, family, um, you know, the home. And then if it ever factors in, if there's enough time, but, you know, we don't have 30 hour days, uh, <laughs> then you take care of yourself. So going out there and realizing that, hey, look, I'm the one that has to take care of myself is, is, is very difficult for, you know, the entire military population. You know, it's just it's just not something that we do, because if you boil military service, anybody that serves, and I believe in this wholeheartedly, you know, um, everybody that serves, you know, if you boil us all down, we all have one common thing and, and, and we, we choose to serve. I mean, it's a choice. You choose to serve others. And so for us to go out there and say, hey, I need help. I need to take a knee. It's, it's so hard to do. And 
it's not a weakness. You know, it's 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 okay to be vulnerable. People confuse those two terms. Vulnerability and weakness are, aren't aren't really the same things. You know, and it takes great courage to face that and to admit that and to say that. You know, and, and you know, fighting our own demons, facing our own stuff is, is some of the hardest things that anyone will ever try to do. So it takes great courage to do that. You know, and not everybody can do that. A lot of guys, uh, particularly in my community, <laughs> like to uh, say there's nothing wrong with them, and maybe there isn't. You know, I, I, I and that's great. You know, I. I you know, um, they don't have, they sleep like a baby at night. That's cool. You know, that, that is, that's fantastic, you know, but I will never discount anybody or talk crap about anybody who does, you know? Um, but you know, it's, a, it's just, uh, it's just sad, um, to see it sometimes in our community where someone goes out to get help and they're looked at, you know, differently or they're treated differently. You know, no one's ashamed to go get treated for a broken leg, you know, why should I be ashamed to go get treated for, you know, some, some stuff that's, that's bothering me, you know, and, you know, we have to understand it's, it's completely normal to feel that way. You know, um, since I graduated the program, I make it a point every time I have an opportunity, I go to the hospital where I stayed at to talk to those patients that are in there, those that are going through the program. And it's in Denton, Texas. Uh, it's a program called Freedom Care. And one of the first things I tell all those people in there is, hey, look, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. There's, there, there isn't. You're, it's, it's normal human nature to deal with some of this stuff. Traumas, uh, psychological traumas, uh, moral injuries, whatever, whatever you want to call it. You know, there's, there's so many different terms nowadays. You know, I'm just, I just, you know, keep everything vanilla, man. It, whatever is bothering you, that's normal. It's, it's your way to deal with it. And, but you have to deal with it. Nobody else can deal with it for you. You know, they, they can't. So, Having the courage to step forward to face that is is uh, it's hard to do. You know, I've I've done a lot. You know, I'm not saying I've done everything. I'm not saying the, I'm the biggest, baddest dude out there. Um, but my reputation stands on its own, and uh, I, I will say that was one of the hardest things I ever had to do was to admit that I needed help. You know, and I got it. You know, thank God. And it wasn't because I. Uh, I, I, it wasn't because, you know, it was, someone was doing it for me. I, I had to do it. And, uh, you know, really I, 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 I needed that purpose, direction and motivation. And I found it in my children, my sons, you know, they were my leadership, you know, that's the army and Marine Corps definition of leadership, you know, providing purpose, direction, motivation, right? So they were my purpose, direction, motivation, because I had to find a reason to get help. If I couldn't come up with a reason for myself, you know, I was told I was no good to anybody else if you're not good to yourself. So I, I made that decision to get help, and I did, and it, and it saved my life, man. It, it really did, and it was one of the hardest but best decisions I ever I ever did. Now, now that you're retired, and you know you've you've been able to get help, and and you'll be able to you're able to work on uh, some of these issues that stem from your your service. You're working with various organizations that benefit soldiers and things like that. Can you talk about, and I know you're working with President Bush, President George Bush, on some, some special projects. Can you talk a little bit about what that's like? All right. So, um, yeah, uh, November of last year, I was selected to sit on uh, President George Bush's uh, uh, advisory council for his military service initiative. And, and it's a, it's a, one of the initiatives that, um, he's very passionate about. And 
really the purpose the whole purpose behind the initiative is to ensure post nine eleven veterans and their families make successful transitions to civilian life um, with with their focus on gaining meaningful employment and overcoming uh, any, any of the obstacles they have uh, through invisible wounds of war or or visible as well. Uh, and they, they accomplish this through you know research, uh, policy development programs, presidential recognition. Obviously, we have the power in the pulpit of of uh, you know our forty third commander in chief. Um, with the MSI, the Military Research Initiative, uh, they inform, influence, and try and unite communities, uh, nonprofits, organizations, businesses, uh, philanthropy to try and maximize the health and well-being of of uh, all post nine eleven veterans' families, veterans and their families. Um, trying to set the conditions for successful transition and so really empower uh, all post nine eleven veterans uh, along with their families to continue their leadership because really that's um, they're 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 a vast resource for for the for the future of our country so I, I sit on his council um, and we work on various different projects uh, to just try and guide and mold some of his strategic vision uh, and you know I was blessed to sit on here um, because I can speak on behalf of you know, a 21-year veteran, uh, having deployed pre and post 9/11, um, but I'm also an Army spouse. My wife's still active duty; uh, she's still stationed here at Bragg. So I know what it's like to see your spouse deploy, and I'll tell you, it's a lot harder to watch your spouse deploy than it's easier to go to war than to be left behind. Um, I'll say that. Um, and then my son serves as well, so I can speak on behalf of a, uh, you know, an Army parent. You know, um, so I just try and bring, you know. Uh, uh, a level of realism to to the uh, to the council um, and tell them what it's like. Try and maintain the pulse of the force, really. Yeah, that, that's awesome stuff, man. Um, so, is is he putting out a book, or is is the council putting out like a some type of uh, media project? Yeah, well, what what one of the products that we've uh, we put out uh, it was it was launched earlier this year. It's the uh, Veteran Transition Roadmap. Um, and it's available online. If you just go to bushcenter.org, you can you can look it up, um, and you can download it. And it's uh, it's very easy to follow. Uh, it's kind of a roadmap. It's not when I say roadmap, it provides guidance. It tells you certain things you need to follow. But as anybody who's ever transitioned or is about to transition, uh, it's highly individualistic. So there's no. It's not like a connect the dot thing where you're going to connect all the dots and you draw a pretty giraffe and you're good to go. No, you have to. Uh, you know, follow it, use the guidance, and, and make it your own, really. So that's one of the products that we put out, and we're looking at putting out some other products to assist with families as well uh, here in the near future. Yeah, that's, that's great stuff. So aside from working with President Bush's initiative, uh, you also work with the Green Beret Foundation? Yes. So when I was going through a lot of my uh, – you know, when I started my med board, obviously after I got out of the hospital uh, the last time, because after I spent my time at uh, Freedom Care for uh, for my PTS, you know, I had a few other uh, medical facilities I had to uh, to visit to take care of some of the uh, medical issues I was dealing with. Um, the Green Beret Foundation really stepped up to fill the gaps. You know, they're like, hey, look, um, what else can we do? You know, way well, we know your medical is covered, so we're not going to pay for your medicine. But what what else can we do? Can we? send your family to go see you. Can we do this? Can we do that? So they really filled the gaps. Um, so when I was able, when I felt like I was, I, I, I wanted to give back. So I started volunteering with the Greenberry Foundation about four and a half, five years ago uh, when I started going through my, my med board. My med board took like two years. So uh, um, I started volunteering and trying to give back. And over the years, I ended up uh, 
developing their ambassador program and and now I'm their chief ambassador and really my role is to kind of manage the uh, I built the ambassador program you know kind of uh, in support of the Green Bay Foundation uh, mission itself we have our own subset mission um, to use our networks and resources to support the overarching mission of the Green Bay Foundation um, but I kind of manage the uh, the program itself and uh, we have a, a Green Bay Foundation ambassadors all all across the country um, and I just try and uh, you know uh, help them best I can, but you know, I'm not, I don't do their work for them. And those are the ambassadors that we have are self-starters. They're fire and forget folks, uh, passionate about serving the special forces regiment. And, uh, they go out there and raise awareness, spread the mission, um, do fundraisers, uh, really just go out there and, uh, you know, uh, do the best they can. So that's, that's one of the other hats I wear, I guess, is the chief ambassador of the Green Beret Foundation. Yeah, they do great work. You know, I follow them on social media and, I, you know, I've checked out the website and, uh, you know, I know they work with a lot of different um, veteran owned, Green Beret veteran owned businesses and things like that. And I, I think it's, you know, with the the capability of social media nowadays, I think it's really a great tool that can be utilized to connect veterans who would otherwise never have connected and, you know, that sort of thing. Um so is there any any points of contact or, or any uh, social media handles that you can give for the audience who, if anyone's interested in learning a little bit more about uh, President Bush's initiative or if anyone's interested in learning more about the Green Brave Foundation? No, of course. Yeah. Um, go to bushcenter.org. I mean, there is a wealth of information on there. Just www.bushcenter.org. Um, and uh, when you go to the tab, I think it's explore your work at the top. It'll it'll bring out all the other stuff because what the Bushes have done is they've uh, excuse me they've continued to carry their policies and and work they did during their time in office and and furthering it now. You know, so they have um, several different. They have a Women's Initiative Fellowship, a Pink Red Ribbon Fellowship, uh, um, Presidential Leadership Scholars for the Transition. They have so much going on, but. Go in there and look up the Military Service Initiative, and uh, you'll find a wealth of resources for you in there. And obviously, on social media, you can find you can find the boss. You know, <laughs> I would I would urge everyone to follow the George W. Bush Presidential Center. It puts out a lot of information. Uh, he just announced uh, his newest passion project. Every every so often, he well, he's always got a passion project, and he just uh, announced completion of his passion project uh, last week. Um, and what he did was he selected. Some of us that he knows and has a personal relationship with, you know, and it's, it's kind of weird for me to say that I do have a work, working relationship with President Bush and he and uh, I don't know how many people know, but he paints. So he's painted every world leader he's ever met. Uh, he, he just he just paints. Um, that's that's one of his uh, one of his passions. So what he did was he selected some of us and he painted us. He, he actually painted my portrait along with, uh, you know, many other uh, uh, servicemen and women. And he compiled all of his work into a book and uh you'll be able to go get the book um you know and what he does is he'll have a, a copy of the painting obviously within the book and he he writes a little uh, pens and essay on each of us and what he knows and what he knows about us and, and stuff like that so uh he just announced that last week um so yeah just just follow the boss man he's uh they're always busy they're always doing something um, for the Green Beret Foundation, yeah, just just check us out online. Uh, there's an Instagram account and Green Beret Foundation, and also on Facebook, GreenBeretFoundation.org, uh, or Green Beret Foundation on Facebook, and then you can go to the uh, website itself, GreenBeretFoundation.org, which contains contains a, uh, another uh, it's another hub for a wealth of resources for networking, connecting uh, within the community. 
Hey, Microsoft, I just want to thank you for taking out the time to come on the podcast and share your experiences, you know, through your service and then through your experience with dealing with TBI and PTSD. And, um, you know, for any any veterans who are listening, who are going through it, um, you know, like Michael has listed some of these resources that are, have helped him. And, uh, you know, I encourage you guys to check it out and, and to go through with trying to figure it out and, and helping yourself, you know. So once again, Mike, I just want to thank you for coming on and, and thank you for your service. No, hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And if anybody, uh, you know, feels like reaching out to me, um, probably the best email to get hold of me is michael at greenberryfoundation.org. Um, you know, I don't just help Green Berets. You know, I <laughs> throw that disclaimer out there. You know, I'm, I'm a, you know, I, uh, I love our community and I'm, I'm going to do all I can and continue to do all I can uh, to help anybody out there. So if anybody has questions, please feel free to reach out to me. Awesome. Thank you. All right, brother. Thank you. Michael's a great guy. Uh, he comes from a long line of military service, and um, you know he he really, in my opinion, represents you know the best of this country. And he's all about sacrifice. He's all about service. And even after leaving, he's he's an open book with his past struggles, and in doing so, you know that will help the next guy who's struggling and who isn't sure how they should go about uh, trying to fix, you know, what the issues they're having. So I think it's very important to have guys with Michael's experience talking about these things openly, uh, you know, to get rid of that stigma and, and to show people that it's not being weak. It's just doing what you have to do to, to fix yourself, you know? And um, so that was great. And like I said, if you have any questions, um, you can send me an email to john at globalrecon.net. Uh, on Facebook, by the time this episode goes live, I'm starting a Facebook group called Global Recon Podcast. Uh, you can just search that on Facebook and join the group. It'll be a place where people can share information, people can share articles, people can have discussions. And if you want to talk about something that you think should be on the next episode, then you can share that there as well. And, um, so yeah, check that out on Facebook. Just search Global Recon Podcast. Uh, my website is www.globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. On Instagram, you can find me at IG Recon. The second account is Global Recon underscore Inc. And the third account is Black Ops Matter. That's all on Instagram. On Twitter, just search IG Recon. And on LinkedIn, search Global Recon. I encourage you guys to continue to share, to like, to subscribe and download these episodes from iTunes, from SoundCloud and, um, you know, help keep the show at the top of the government and national categories on iTunes. And that way, you know, we'll continue to bring you guys uh, good content. So with that being said, I'll see you guys in a couple of days. It's another great episode.